Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Summit. Our guest today is Rachel Gillum, PhD. She is a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University's Immigration Policy Lab and senior director at consulting firm Rice Hadley Gates. She recently finished her book, See Something, Say Something, Muslim American Responses to U.S. Domestic Counterterrorism Efforts. And she's going to talk with us today about her book, her work, and her life. Hi, Rachel. Welcome. Hi, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us here on the Women in Diplomacy podcast. First off, tell us a little bit about See Something, Say Something, because it's one of the few, if not the only, academic manuscripts addressing this topic. And it's based on original representative nationwide survey data of Muslim Americans. I'm very curious what inspired you to work on this topic and how is it going so far? Yeah, well, thanks so much. So the book is based on um, my research I conducted while getting my PhD at Stanford. Um, So as you mentioned, I um, surveyed Muslims around the country, um, interviewed hundreds of Muslims around the country for the research. And really the the motivation for the book, um, it's really addressing some common concerns a lot of Americans have. It turns out that half of all Americans believe Muslims are um, anti-American, 50% believe that Muslims are more prone to violence, and a third really believe that Muslims should be under more police scrutiny than other groups in the United States. But it turns out we don't actually have any empirical evidence to assess whether these fears are justified at all. Are Muslims, in fact, more violent, for instance? Are they anti-American, for instance? And so my book really addresses some of these common fears. And I'm able to show with the data, representative data, that indeed Muslims are very well integrated into the United States. They're no more likely than Christians, for example, to support political violence. They reject it at the exact same rates. And uh, we see that they are, in fact, one of the single largest known sources of disrupted terrorism plots in the United States since 9-11. So they actually play a very crucial role in helping secure our country. But unfortunately, because of a lot of the scrutiny they've experienced in some of the post-9-11, some Muslims are feeling increasingly uncomfortable going to law enforcement out of fear of unfair treatment, again, wrongful arrests. I can get into the details of some of the policies that have happened since 9-11. Um, and so in essence, some of our policies, counterterrorism policies that are meant to secure the country are in fact making us less secure in some ways and also very importantly, violating some civil liberties of some of our citizens. I'm a big fan of your work. And one of the reasons is that I think your research is systematic and rigorous in terms of looking at this diverse community's attitudes and experiences. Can you explain to Women in Diplomacy listeners, why is this book unique? Absolutely. So one of the things I saw in the field was that most studies on Muslim Americans have been done in small pieces. So what that means is that researchers might go to a particular city, interview, let's say, around 50 Muslims in a particular ethnic group, let's say in Dearborn, Michigan, Arabs of Lebanese descent. And they'll write books or research based on those interviews, which is great and very useful. 
But what, what I wanted to do is really expose the great diversity of the Muslim American community. What a lot of people don't know is that at most a third of the Muslim American community is Arab. In fact, most Muslim, many Muslims come from a variety of backgrounds, African-Americans, from various Asian countries, from various African countries, um, I can go on, um, Eastern European, Iran, etc. So I really wanted to capture all the different views of these communities. So what I did was actually uh, use a research firm to, similar to the ones that do these you know, massive election polls during these presidential election years to really get an assessment of what the entire community believes and thinks and what their experiences have been in the post 9-11 environment. And so that's what I mean by saying that this is one of the first systematic representative surveys and assessments of the Muslim American community, um, at least to my, to my knowledge. So that, that's really the major contribution I try to make there is really doing the systematic assessment and being able to um, compare Muslims to other Americans, to um, look across different segments of the community, so on and so forth. But in addition to the survey, so that's a big part of the research, but I also sat back and I spoke with hundreds of Muslims across the country. I really wanted to understand their experience, how they viewed much of this dialogue around Islam in the post 9-11 environment. And that was really fascinating. And I think one of the main themes I saw was, it sounds so simple to say, but just that Muslims are just like every other American. And I know a lot of folks, especially those born and raised in the United States, again, they, they have the same values, they have the same expectations of government, of fairness and equality. And they were very perplexed as to why Americans would even think that they wouldn't be as outraged as anyone else um, about Islamic terrorism and they wouldn't be as afraid and wouldn't want to help as much as anyone else would want to help. And so that was very clear in the interviews. And I think it's just a story that's not told enough and is not seen enough in a lot of our political debates today. I agree. And I'm so looking forward to reading your book. So of course, I recommend that women in diplomacy listeners go out as soon as possible and check out your work. Where should we go to learn more? So I have a website, rachelgillum.com, and I'll keep that up to date with once the book is published and ready for purchase. Um, it's under review right now, but that would probably be the best way to sort of keep track of my research and different projects that I have ongoing. So Rachel, in addition to your research and your work at Stanford, you are also senior director at Rice Hadley Gates. Can you tell us a bit more about that. What does a typical day look like on the job? Yeah, so Rice Hadley Gates, most people haven't heard of it because we're a really tiny private consulting firm. It was founded by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley. And we work again with private companies who are doing operations abroad and we really draw on the expertise of our partners to help companies expand, excel, and do business overseas. So as a senior director, I'm managing a portfolio of clients, making sure you, they get what they need and managing several projects at a time. One thing I love about my job is that no day actually ever looks the same just because the world is constantly changing. We're constantly giving different advice, political risk analysis, basic business consulting, 
or it can even be more in-depth research. Maybe a client is getting into a new market, let's say in the Middle East. They don't understand the culture. They don't really know how to do business there, how to understand the clientele there. And we sort of help them do that. And I'll help them do that through doing various research projects and walking them through different things. So again, it's a wide variety of things that happen day to day, but it's a great way for me to use my background in international relations, knowledge of foreign policy, government, and to see how that meets with business. And that's been really fascinating and something I've learned a lot about while being at the firm. What would you say is the biggest challenge of being a consultant in an environment like that? That's a great question. I, I, there's obviously so many challenges in any job. I think one of the biggest challenges is sometimes clients have sort of an abstract question or an abstract problem that they're not quite sure how to articulate. And so part of our job, part of my job is to, is to articulate it for them, sort of take their broad concerns and sort of more systematically uh, lay it out and then lay out a plan to how to address it. So that's, that's always a challenge is to really fully understand the client's concerns, all their restraints, and make a plan around that. Um, the other challenge is also there's occasions when a client has an issue that you don't know a lot about, frankly, and it's your job to really pull in your resources, pull in your contacts to learn very quickly and become intelligent on that and draw on the correct resources to help support the client. I would say those are some of the biggest challenges as far as a practical level. Um, and I think the third challenge, which I think goes across any career that I've faced, and I'm sure many of the listeners face, is this problem of imposter syndrome. Sometimes you feel, you know, you're in the room with C-level executives and you're thinking to yourself, do I really belong here? Am I really taken seriously? So I think that's a constant challenge to really know I belong in the room. I really know what I'm talking about and I have the skill set to help and address these problems. And so that's always a balance, I think, in, in almost every role. It, whenever you're pushing yourself, you'll be in that situation. It's so great to hear you say that because I know a lot of us feel similar and it's nice to know that we're not alone, even alongside the fiercest of women, such as yourself. Were you also working on your PhD while working full-time? I, I only had a little overlap. I complete, I basically had completed my PhD before starting full-time there. So I, I quickly transitioned from the academic world into the private sector world, which was also a big learning curve. Academics work very differently, work very autonomous, autonomously, pursue things that are purely of interest to our, us. And then I'm thrown into a world where I'm responding to client needs that are ever-changing. Again, maybe, like I said, on topics that I may not be a complete expert in and to quickly teach myself, move quickly, and also write in a very different way when you're writing for executives is very different than writing an academic book, for instance. So that was definitely a learning curve there. And you were writing your book and continuing to your work at the Stanford Immigration Policy Lab while also working at Rice Headley Gates, how was it balancing all of that? Yeah, that that's a great question. Well, thankfully, the partners are extremely supportive of my work, my academic work. As you know, 
Dr. Condoleezza Rice and Dr. Robert Gates are academics themselves. They both have PhDs. And Steve Hadley is also extremely supportive. And they very much pushed me to make time and get my book out. You know, I'd done this research. It should be, should offer it to the world kind of thing. So I really appreciate their support. Um, but also, yeah, I, I continue to work at the Immigration Policy Lab on some other projects as well. We're currently working on a tool that is better able to be used by academics and policymakers alike to assess how well immigrants are integrating into Western countries over time. So that does take out some some time to balance. That may mean I have some late nights on occasion or be wor I'm working on the weekends on occasion. But with with good organization and balance, I think you know you can you can get these things done, and that was really important to me to make sure I got my book published. Um, you know, it took a little bit longer than I hoped, but <laughs> it got done. So very excited about that. I did an interview recently with Aaron Kamler. For listeners out there, you can check it out. Its title is Musical Theater Diplomacy. And Erin, she's amazing. She also has her PhD. And her advice in this episode essentially was don't do a PhD unless you are very passionate about your topic because it's just such a huge commitment. I feel like the topic of PhD can be so complicated that maybe it needs its own episode or a separate series even. Yeah, and I think it does because... One debate that I'm always talking to with, I'm still very much in touch with people in my PhD program at Stanford. And, you know, a lot of people, when they're in the throes of it, you know, it's one thing deciding whether to start one. And I think you know, people have different views of what they want to be at the end, whether they want to be academic or whether they want to go work at a think tank like Brookings or the Rand Corporation, or they want to go into policy work. I think it's a lot of people don't understand quite what it means to get a PhD. And then when you're in the throes of it, if you're feeling discouraged, which happens a lot, you know, do you still try to pursue the academic path or how can you prepare yourself to get into the private sector? That's what a lot of people complain about is that their advisors and people there basically won't support them if they're not going into academia and they feel very lost when trying to basically leave academia and get into another field, it can be very hard. Um, and so, and that is something that, you know, my experience was really, I guess, unique, I suppose, is that I took every summer and I, I went to work for the government. I took internships and fellowships working, you know, at the Rand Corporation with the U.S. government um, and sort of did a lot of networking in the private sector to make sure I could make that transition and had some experience on my resume besides just the PhD. Um, Cause it turns out a lot of private companies view PhDs as sort of these like slow workers and thinkers that aren't very useful. So um, especially if you're in like the social sciences, it's not like your computer science PhD and, you know, have this very useful skill set or clear, clearly useful skill set, I'll say. In your personal experience, were there a lot of females getting their PhDs? You know, there were, at least at Stanford, we had a strong number of females getting their PhDs. But what we don't have is female professors. With mentors, you know, we often want a mentor that's just like us. You know, I'm lucky that my mentor happens to be a Black female in foreign policy uh, like me. But, you know, a lot of times you need to be able to find mentors that are white males. And that's fine, you know, and that's the case. In academia, a lot of times you don't have other females and there's a lot of challenges being a female 
in these really strong male environments, foreign policy being one of them, academia also being one of them, like so many fields. Um, and so really trying to learn how to build advocates who are men and, you know, the importance of that too, because frankly, again, when there's not a lot of folks like you, it's hard to, you know, find those mentors sometimes. Has it been challenging being a Black female working in foreign policy? Yeah, that's a really great question. So it's a complicated question. I think, of course, gender and race interact and intersect in different ways in different contexts. Most generally in the foreign policy space, I think immediately I tend to think of my identity as a woman being having been particularly challenging at times. Um, as you know, as listeners know, the foreign policy space tends to be very male dominated. And, you know, it can be challenging to really establish yourself as an authoritative voice on various topics and really having your voice heard and, and being confident in your role there. Um, and not to mention, again, in any field, in any role, again, there's a lot of just assumptions about women and women's place and women's roles. And I think those, it's always, it can, um, frankly, to, to challenge and counteract those. And I, and that has been a challenge at times in different points of my career. Um, being black again, <laughs> I think this also contributes in, in some of the same ways. I think some, sometimes people have assumptions or, and often it's much more benign. They, they're not used to seeing people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds in various positions, especially in authoritative positions. And so that can be challenging in a similar way, um, especially when the two are again, intersecting. I think it also can, that, and, and knowing that perception exists really can contribute to my sense of imposter syndrome. I know people are sort of looking at me sometimes like, who's this and who, you know, and really um, finding ways to sort of gracefully establish my authority or that I should be in the room and that I know what I'm talking about and have something to contribute. So it's, it's always a balance because you don't want those thoughts to sort of overwhelm you and just shape the way you see everything. But I'm also very aware of those perceptions and um, sort of those dynamics in a room. Um, and going back to the piece about mentoring, you know, it's really great when there's times and the time I have right now, you know, my, one of my, my boss and one of my mentors happens to also be a black female in foreign policy, but most of the time we don't really have that luxury as women or as people of color. And I think it's really important to learn how to find and seek out and develop relationships and find mentors who are often nothing like you um, in my, you know, white males, whatever. I mean, these people can help you if they're so different from you. You know, it just takes time and intention to really develop those relationships. And I really do think that's very important for, for women, for people of color to think about as they're walking and, and pursuing their careers and, and dreams. So, yeah, and I, and I know this challenge of, again, being female or being a person of color in the foreign policy space, is not a challenge that I alone face. I've thankfully met many other people who have you know, had to navigate this. So I am part of a, a national organization called the Truman National Security Project um, based in Washington, DC. And within that organization, I've co-founded with one of my partners, Ch Tony Johnson, um, what's called what we call the True Diversity Initiative. And what we're really trying to do is help 
support having more diverse voices in the foreign policy space because we really believe that having more perspectives, having different experiences contribute to, to our debates um, in the United States, national security-based foreign policy are really going to improve our policy. We know in the private sector that diverse groups have better outcomes, perform better, and we really feel like this can enhance our national security and what we know about the world. And so what we try to do is help um, and mentor individuals who are pursuing careers in foreign policy. Again, women, people of color, LGBT, people that, again, just tend to be underrepresented in this field. Um, and also just help encourage them to contribute their voices. Sometimes that's really what it, it takes is to really point to someone and say, no, you are an expert in this area. You should be writing this op-ed. You should be speaking up and appearing on this TV program, so on and so forth. And also when we have the opportunity, because this will come across, you know, our desk and other people's desks, you know, recommending people for positions or recommending people for opportunities, we all, we try to definitely consider underrepresented folks who are amazing and qualified, but just otherwise wouldn't be in particular circles or networks to be considered for certain positions. Amazing. And how can listeners get in touch about the Truman Project and the True Diverse Initiative? Um, you can go to true, trumanproject.org and learn more about our different fellowships, different programs, and what the organization does. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about your personal story? For example, were there any experiences in your life that let you know this career choice was a good fit for you? What inspired you to go into international relations? That's a good question. And, you know, the funny thing about, you know, my career pursuits is that if you would have asked me when I was an undergrad, I went to University of Washington in Seattle, you know, where I saw myself in a decade I would not have stated where I'm at or have done the things that I've done. You know, I think we sort of take our careers one step at a time based on sort of what's presented, or at least for me, you know, what's presented in front of you. I think my initial interest in international relations was really sparked by, one, I'm from a military family, and so we generally would talk about current events and foreign policy let's say around the dinner table but also you know i think this is a, this is true for a lot of people my age is that you know 911 happened when i was in high school and that was really a formative moment and sort of spiked my piqued my curiosity and sort of what's going on you know in the outside world and wanting to study that so that sort of shaped my studies once i got into college as far as pers so from 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 there you know i had experiences working in DC. I worked directly for the government, but I also was interested in conducting original research because I saw value in that. I had questions that didn't seem to have answers and wanting to pursue that. So I, you know, got into some great um, research projects and ended up pursuing a PhD. But as far as a particular experience, I think, again, along the way, much of what shaped um, what I actually ended up pursuing was a lot of mentors in my life. I had a lot of amazing mentors, a lot of people that helped guide me through and even understand what were my career options based on my interest in, in international relations and foreign policy. So I have to definitely, you know, give a shout out and give praise to the people you know, that really helped me along the way, guiding me through that path. Thank you so much for sharing. 
Okay, so in closing, what advice would you give to young women who might be interested in pursuing a career path similar to yours? Again, I sort of, I think of my work in two different career paths, one as an academic and the second as, you know, sort of directly working in policy. But broadly speaking, like, as I, as I mentioned, I really think it's so important for everyone to really seek out and position themselves to have great mentorship in whatever stage they're at, whether you're in college, whether you're in grad school, whether you're in your career already, you need mentors and you need sponsors wherever you are, because to get to the next level or to know how to excel in your current seat, you'll need to have people surrounding you, advocating for you, giving you insight, boosting your confidence in some cases, and just giving you the tools you need to succeed. I think what I've learned in all these paths and all these different experiences I've had is that, you know, it it matters to have people advocating for you. And those recommendations really take you far in, in a lot of these um, positions. You know, of course, every role requires some element of you know, knowledge and skill. And that's great. And I think a lot of women sometimes really cling to that. And we work really hard and we say, look, I've, you know, crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's. I should get this promotion. But it's really the relationships that can take you to the next level and open the doors that frankly aren't always open to everyone. So I would definitely emphasize, again, mentorship, building relationships in the office, um, in your academic community, whatever it might be. I think that's really key in um, sort of pursuing your dreams and reaching your goals. Hey, thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is called Misty Roses, and it's by the amazing musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks goes out to Ruby Works Records in Dublin, Ireland for allowing the use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out the foreignpolicyproject.org.